Hey ya girlies, it's me, Devlin Camp. This is a special queer serial announcement coming to you from the future, 2023. You're listening to an episode from the past, during which you might hear me plug some bonus content, especially in the credits. But as of 2023, here's everything you need to know if you want more queer serial, or if you want to support my many ongoing LGBTQ history projects. I got a lot going on. You can sign up for periodic email updates at the link for everything in the episode notes. First off, you can now listen to my entire backlog of Queer Serial bonus episodes on Apple Podcasts, just like you listen to the regular episodes. Just head to the Queer Serial show page on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to additional bonus episodes for $2.99 a month. Those episodes are everything from my Patreon, minus the visual stuff, but all of the bonus episodes. It includes all of the spin-off episodes, Forgotten Fairy Tales, the White Knight Riots interviews, all of my Mattachine meeting interviews, Randy Wicker Radio, etc., 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 every episode of everything I've ever made. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts for $2.99 a month, or still for $3 a month on Patreon if you want the bonus episodes and all of my visual research and my archive dives included, and behind the scenes of my Randy Wicker documentary. Also, If you're a Spotify kind of girl like me, you can also get all of my bonus episodes through Spotify now too. Just go to the podcast section and search Queer Serial Bonus Shows and there's a whole feed of Queer Serial Bonus Shows. And if you wanna get some gay merch while also supporting my queer history projects, check out the new Queer Serial Etsy shop. Etsy.com slash shop slash queer history uplift. There's a link in the episode notes here. I've got podcast merch from throughout the series and also lots of queer history related items like postcards from Mona's 1930s lesbian bar and Marsha P. Johnson stickers with her own handwriting that says gay love always straight from the Wicker and Johnson archive that I've been working on. And I've got gorgeous mugs that say queer history is world history. Other stickers that say drag is not a crime with a real photo of drag queens being arrested. And I've got these warning stickers that you can put in textbooks that are lacking queer history to warn future readers. Lots of other buttons and other stuff on Etsy too. There are links to everything in the episode notes here and at QueerSerial.com or just search for me on Instagram, Etsy, Patreon, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I think that's everything. While you're on QueerSerial.com, by the way, check out the new episode guide. You can explore the entire podcast series episode by episode with all the research and transcripts and bonus episodes and lots of photos and videos from the true history that I cover, all at QueerSerial.com. Finally, last thing, you don't have to, but if you'd like to, go ahead and catch up on all four seasons of Queer Serial and the bonus episodes before season five comes out this October, Queer History Month. The new season is a standalone story in our history and a spin-off of an event that I briefly touched on in Season 3, Episode 7, if you want a hint. Stay tuned. Thanks so much for all of your support. I literally couldn't do it without you. Enjoy the show. Suddenly, my world was transformed into a whole, wonderful, different place. Because my night dream and daydream fantasies from then on would always include him. The one who is going to be everything to me, as I naturally would be to him. Welcome to Mattachine. 1948. Harry Hay works at Leahy Manufacturing, 23 years after Henry Gerber's short-lived secret society in Chicago, featured in last week's episode. On the job, in the factory, a co-worker takes Harry Hay aside quietly. The FBI has been asking around about you, he tells Harry. They knew all about you, he says. Which secret do they know? That Harry Hay is a communist? That his wife is? And when she's not around, Harry cruises the park for men when he's able? It's where he had heard about the failed secret society in Chicago. It was another furtive encounter with someone like him, revealing a piece of shared history. For years, this has been happening to Harry. At 14 years old and 6 foot 2, he looked old enough to get into a union, so he worked a tramp steamer full of men from San Francisco to Los Angeles. He had just left the Nevada hayfields his father sent him to work, worrying he had spawned a sissy. Spawn being his father's choice word. On the tramp steamer, before it even left the dock, Harry had his first sexual experience with a man. Laying in a lifeboat, the 25-year-old man he'd just met was surprised to learn Harry's real age, 14. 
The man told Harry about his experiences traveling to other countries on ships like this. He said that they're part of a silent brotherhood that exists all over the world, a hidden society of people who can recognize each other. Harry knows the danger of openly being a minority. It's rather commonplace that he and his father were once forced to the roadside by local Ku Klux Klan members to watch a cross burning. He understands very young that it's dangerous to be considered different. He remains a silent member of his group, off and on, for more than 20 years. But he later separates his sexuality for his politics. But then his political party attracts hatred too. With fear of communist espionage rising, the U.S. government hunts down political radicals. So the Communist Party has its members structured in a clandestine cell system. That's a system that keeps levels of membership separate in order to keep everyone anonymous to each other and safe from infiltration. Harry separates his life similarly for similar reasons. While one secret the FBI might know about Harry might ruin his life, another secret might take down thousands. Best to keep his secrets separate. But Harry knows what the FBI must have been asking his factory co-worker about. He's certain his co-worker must be referring to his membership with the Communist Party. Or has the FBI figured out that this communist they're tracking, Harry Hay, is the leader of the gay organization causing trouble in a completely separate case file at the Bureau labeled Mattachine Foundation, a.k.a. Mattachine Society. This week on Mattachine... I keep thinking, if I didn't live in the box, and if he didn't live in the box, maybe we could come to... We could come to a more honest, open relationship with each other. There were a lot of things that my father said were wrong that I knew weren't. I figured that they were wrong, too. But because I had no way of telling them, it didn't mean that I was wrong. It only meant that I had no way of telling them. But I intend to be a homosexual, and I intend to find out exactly what this life is going to be like. Mattachine is a podcast dedicated to exploring the overlooked, forgotten, or often untold stories in gay history. I'm Devlin Camp. Harry Hay was born in Worthing, England, and moved to Los Angeles with his parents in 1917. As a young man, he reads Edward Carpenter's The Intermediate Sex in the library, and he realizes that same-sex love isn't just his private fantasy. I'm aware of the fact that I'm living one life in San Francisco on weekends. I'm living another life at, at Stanford. I should tell you that while I will have some voice actors on this show, the clips you'll hear of Harry Hay today are really Harry, from recordings courtesy of the One Archives at USC Library. So, Harry starts at Stanford University shortly after hearing about Henry Gerber's society from The Man in the Park, which we talked about in our previous episode. I begin to discover that, you know, that um, making contact with people is not as hard as I thought it was. Almost immediately, you learn the I language. And uh, there were a lot of wild tales floating around in the 30s, which by this time, Champ had told me about, you know, the business of wearing a red tie, uh, which was one of them, and... Um, Oh, and of course, the, 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 the usual cruising techniques, you know, asking for a match and asking for the time, all that stuff. Then I found that the eye language was marvelous, so I used that. At 17, I was looking for love and finding tricks. I did find that in, at Stanford that uh, it was not difficult, and I was also learning about the fickleness and the way uh, and what heartbreaking me, meant. For instance, it's confusing for Harry when a young man he's seeing romantically doesn't return to school one fall. And then I got a feeling that he didn't come back because of our relationship. And I didn't understand that at all. I thought, that's because I can't be honest. Because we have to keep pretending and we have to keep lying. If only we could come out of the box and he could come out of the box and everything would be just fine. So I thought, well, the least I can do is I can come out of the box. I don't know what it means. I have no idea. But I intend to be a homosexual, and I intend to find out exactly what this life is going to be like. So the best thing to do is to say who I am. So he tells his closest friends. I told him on a, on a Wednesday, came out on a Wednesday, whatever the date was, uh, simply said, uh, well, okay, so uh, does that mean we can't see you? And uh, I said, no. And they said, well, um, when you want to go away to San Francisco, you, you just tell us in advance, and we won't plan anything for that weekend. And, just to go the extra mile, he tells all of his clubs. The eating club said, uh, made them, uh, said that, well, you know, that uh, if you want to go on eating here, it's all right. Uh, but the people in the club got to the place where, you know, there would be an empty space on either side of where I happened to be sitting to eat. Because you know, apparently it rubbed off, you know. Um, <clears throat> they were afraid it might. And a lot of guys whom I'd known for many, many years here in Los Angeles all sort of said, well... <laughs> 
you know, um, it doesn't make any difference to us, but there, some of the people we know might think it was, well, they might ask some embarrassing questions, so you, you don't mind if we don't come around quite so often. And I'd say, you know, sure, okay, whatever you have to do. And just to be sure everyone knows, he tells his teachers. The the guy who was the head of the drama department simply said to me, what did you tell me that for? You want to play Juliet? And I said, no. (laughs) Harry leaves Stanford early to return to L.A., though not because of issues being openly gay. In Los Angeles, he meets famous closeted men, many of whom find him too flamboyant for their anonymity. But Harry cruises around and makes some friends through Will Gear, a well-known actor who would become Harry's lover. By the way, Will is later on a hit CBS show in the 1970s called The Waltons. He teaches Harry about the Communist Party and radical activism. Together they support labor strikes, such as the 83-day West Coast Waterfront Strike of 1934. Harry soon joins an agitation propaganda group of players who perform agitprop on the streets at protests. This is a type of political theater meant to inspire activism, and Harry is nearly arrested multiple times. He's attending communist meetings and getting along with the people, and he finally joins the Communist Party. It's ironic that Harry's sexuality brought him to the Communist Party because the party opposes homosexuality. Not knowing that he's gay, fellow communist Anita Platke becomes close with Harry, and in 1938, they marry. Harry and Anita adopt two girls and move to a hillside house overlooking the water of Silver Lake in Los Angeles, and a decade goes by. Harry works manufacturing jobs and teaches folk music history at the People's Education Center, where many communists are studying in the 1940s. I had had isolated myself from gay social life. Uh, I did have occasional contact with gay people. And um, uh, I did some cruising. Meanwhile, an informant for the FBI discovers a letter. This informant, whoever they are, steals a copy of this letter after it's sent to the Los Angeles Communist Party Membership Committee. It's a letter from a member requesting readmission into the party under a new pseudonym. A pseudonym quite similar to the one I told you about last week, the one Harry would use in his own organization, Ian MacDonald. That letter to the Communist Party, now handed over to the FBI, is from Harry. The FBI seeks out the letter's author. They take photos of Harry. They look into his wife. They even dig up that he has been treated for syphilis, which really confirms to them that he must be subversive. To them, syphilis shows weak moral character. Harry's name and the letter are placed on FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover's Custodial Detention Index. That index is a list of people of Italian, German, and communist sympathies. According to the FBI, these people should be detained in the event of war. But because the FBI can't legally detain anyone, the Attorney General had Director Hoover close down that index. But Hoover simply just renames the index, the Security Index, and Harry's name remains on that list for years to come. The Bureau intends to watch his every move. They place a mail cover on his house, watching all incoming and outgoing letters. A member of Harry's own family in Wisconsin writes to the FBI that Harry and his wife are holding communist meetings in their home. FBI replies with contact info for the Milwaukee special agent in charge should she have any future information. And now, the FBI waits for Harry Hay to cause trouble. But Harry spends his free time creating his folk music history class that teaches his students how music creates social change. Like I mentioned, he enjoys political theater. And how it develops out of the social context and social struggles of people and how it relates to struggle or how it doesn't relate to struggle, how it relates to change and how it doesn't relate to change. And that's going to take a bit of study. And I find out that I've taken on quite a bite. And his ties to the Communist Party and his teachings can't keep him away from homosexuals. He inevitably sees this quote-unquote silent brotherhood wherever he goes. And I was dealing with artists and writers, I was dealing with musicians, and I'm aware of the fact that I'm dealing with gay people again. And all of a sudden I recognize, and what a relief it is. And yet we don't have a language, we're not communicating as gay people, but we are communicating as sort of people who understand each other because we're all in the party. And we sort of sense that there is something with each other. 
He also has gay co-workers. Harry's gay co-worker Bill has a friend who worked as a secretary in the State Department. One day in the late 40s, Bill's friend comes to town and visits Bill and Harry for lunch at the factory. He tells them all about what's happening in Washington, and what Harry had seen on TV and read in the New York Times. He tells Harry, everybody's terrified. This man has been watching all the homosexual men in his department disappear, and he finally figured out that many people who were fired had slept with Andrew, a beautiful new employee who was reassigned to D.C. from another city. It weighs on Harry's mind, his quiet minority now discovered by the U.S. government. That's not to say heterosexuals don't know homosexuals exist, but now the government is recognizing them and doing something about them. And I begin to recognize that somehow or other, my time as a heterosexual, a pseudo-heterosexual, is coming to an end. But Harry's still committed to the party and committed to teaching his music class. All the while, his search for music recordings keeps him constantly networking with other closeted men. And then comes the beer bust of August 9th, 1948. So one of the guys whom I liked very much uh, had this party one night. He lived over near USC. Uh, in one of those big old houses the other part and uh so he said come on over uh there are a couple of the guys i'm having one is a, a priest from uh the seminary but he's going to usc at the present time and he knows quite a lot about french folk music and maybe you'll find that kind of thing you want from him so i go to this party where this is and they're all gay people they drink and he stays around chatting and conversation slowly drifts to the recent kinsey statistic released that 37 percent of men had had a homosexual experience it's breaking news that Dr. Alfred Kinsey has discovered one out of ten men are homosexual, which fascinates the crowd at this party. Harry believes this means there is a possibility that these people can be determined a minority capable of organizing. And with Henry Wallace running for president that year on a campaign promising to end racial segregation, Harry thinks they might even be able to be represented at the Democratic Convention. This is a time of great change for the Democratic Party, shifting to a party of social change and identity politics. We could maybe we, we could get the, uh, the Progressive Party to stop uh, hounding the guys in the State Department. Maybe simply let people uh, be what they want to be. Harry and the boys are up late drinking, pitching names for their group. We're trying to say, among other things, how could we, how could we possibly present it to the American public? And we figured, well, the only thing we can do is call ourselves bachelors. Because that would be true. And it would be a way of reaching other gay people throughout the country. It might be a signal, you see. They land on Bachelors for Wallace in order to get Henry Wallace's attention in his run for the presidency. Well, I don't think I ever got a chance to talk to that priest about ranch folk music. I think that got lost. In fact, I'm sure I did. Harry goes home excited about the possibilities. He stays up late writing a five-page prospectus for the Bachelors for Wallace. It's titled, Preliminary Concepts for International Bachelors Fraternal Orders for Peace and Social Dignity. But more simply, he nicknamed the essay, The Call. I ended up writing what amounted to a call for uh, uh, what would amount to as a permanent organization. He later wrote, I realized that we had been contributive in various ways over the millennia, and I felt that we could return to being contributive again. Then we could be respected for our differences, not for our samenesses to heterosexuals. The next day, he contacts the host of last night's party for everyone's phone numbers. He makes calls saying, Look, I've got this wonderful idea, and I've got this wonderful prospectus, and it's not only Bachelors for Wallace, but an incorporation that incorporates a whole larger idea of a movement that we can have, and, you know, and uh, let's get together tomorrow night and, and, and begin to work on it. But he finds that no one seems to remember this conversation about Bachelors for Wallace. Or if they do, they pretty much tell him the idea is nuts. Couldn't be caught dead in the thing, and uh, a beer bus is a beer bus. It was a lot of fun last night, a lot of fun to talk about, but no, it wasn't out of your mind. It's absolutely impossible. And don't bother to call me again. No, don't call me, I'll call you. Um, and I suddenly discovered that here I am holding a perfectly good idea, but I'm the only one. He responds that they can try to get ministers and psychologists to approve of their work, and then they wouldn't look crazy. But then, upon contacting these types of professionals, they tell Harry they might consider such a group if he starts one first. Professionals want a group first. Potential group members want professionals to endorse the group before they join it. Harry's ideas remain nothing but ideas on paper. But just up the road, in Burbank, a secretary writing under the name Lisa Ben is distributing her underground lesbian magazine 
vice versa. In Los Angeles, Merton Bird is forming Knights of the Clock, a group for interracial gay couples. Harry isn't alone. He just doesn't know that yet. Let's talk about Kinsey. Alfred Kinsey was a zoologist at Indiana University and founded the Kinsey Institute for Research in Sex, Gender, and Reproduction. In 1948, he and Wardell Pomeroy released the book Sexual Behavior in the Human Male. This and his 1953 Sexual Behavior in the Human Female together are referred to as the Kinsey Reports. The first book includes the Kinsey Scale, which ranges from 0 to 6. On one end, subjects could be found exclusively heterosexual, and the other exclusively homosexual, with a separate category labeled X for asexuals. Kinsey determined that sexuality is a spectrum, as many people had had both same-sex and opposite-sex experiences. Over a series of thousands of interviews, Kinsey found that about 10% of people were exclusively homosexual, and that 37% of his subjects had had at least one gay experience. Though these reports have faced some criticism, they remained bestsellers for several months and together sold three-quarters of a million copies with worldwide attention from the press. People were talking about sex for erotic pleasure, not just procreating. Birth control was becoming popular and the taboo of sex outside of marriage was beginning to lift. When the first Kinsey Report was released in 1948, Henry Gerber wrote in a letter, The great value of the Kinsey Report is to show that the people in the United States do not pay the slightest attention to such taboos and sumptuary laws. They can no more be enforced than the late lamented prohibition laws. Gay Los Angeles. Gay LA of the early 1950s has cruising spots well-known in gay circles. The Long Beach Navy Yard, Crystal Baths near the Santa Monica Pavilion, Pershing Square, north of Hollywood Boulevard, there are neighborhoods known for many lesbian tenants. Gay culture is privately thriving, and Harry is privately enjoying it. But soon the outside government influence will crack down, and Harry's two worlds will have to collide. What Harry and most people don't know yet is that in the late 1940s, about 100 homosexuals per year are fired from federal jobs. This is because of the McCarran Rider, which allows the Secretary of State to fire any employee at his absolute discretion for national security. The McCarran Rider is able to be used for homosexuals and communists alike. But we'll put a pin in that story for another day, specifically two weeks from now. For people in general, gays and reds are similar for many reasons. Gays and reds are similar because they both keep secret identities. They both have an underworld culture. They seem loyal to their group. They both have, or will have, publications and meeting places. Paranoia will grow until the government firings increase from 100 per year to about one a day in the mid-50s. It's hard to trace exactly how many there are because most dismissals are recorded as volunteer resignations or the employee faces being outed. This heats up in February 1950. Senator Joseph McCarthy gives a now famous speech in February 1950. It's about why the nation is seemingly losing the Cold War. He announces that 205 card-carrying communists are working in the State Department. During this time, the Red Scare, it isn't a new thing to say that communists are working in the government, but it is a new thing to announce that there is a list. Eleven days later, on the Senate floor, McCarthy names two cases as examples in which he blurs the lines between homosexuality and communism, as people often do. Harry Hay believes McCarthy is looking for a new scapegoat. Harry believes that because the black community is already organized and Jewish people were too recently persecuted in the Holocaust, that McCarthy is looking to get away with placing blame on the relatively unknown and unrecognizable homosexuals. Harry later said, It was obvious McCarthy was setting up the pattern for a new scapegoat, and it was going to be us, gays. We had to organize. We had to move. We had to get started. Harry's right. The Red Scare of Communism brings paranoia because the American government demands patriotism, unconditional loyalty. Sound familiar? When the government needs to weed out communists, they have everyone on the watch for anything atypical of the husband, wife, 2.5 kids, a pet, and a white picket fence. The government justifies the firing of homosexuals by pushing the idea that gays are at risk for blackmail. The government believes that the enemy, Russia, can hold a gay person's sexual secret against them for American secrets from that homosexual's government job. And perhaps it's unintentional, but by blurring the lines between communism and homosexuality as similar security risks, Joseph McCarthy boosts the witch hunt for gays and government jobs. This catalyzes what will become labeled the Lavender Scare. The Lavender Scare will run long past the lifetime of the McCarthyist hunt for communists. 
March 1st, 1950. The New York Times reports that since 1947, 91 people have resigned from the State Department while under investigation as security risks. And I quote, most of these were homosexuals. The Times will continue reporting throughout the month on Senator McCarthy's work to weed out homosexuals in government jobs. He calls them perverts and says they are security risks because they are subject to blackmail. Senator Kenneth Wary also believes this to be a moral and security issue. He says, quote, you can't hardly separate homosexuals from subversives. Mind you, I don't say every homosexual is a subversive, and I don't say every subversive is a homosexual. But a man of low morality is a menace in the government, whatever he is, and they are all tied up together. End quote. Now, back to you. Harry is angry. He's angry that no political power, especially the political party he believes in, has taken a stand against the homosexual witch hunt. The minority Harry finds himself in is truly politically on its own. Summer, July 8th, 1950. Harry attends his daughter's rehearsal at the Lester Horton Dance Theater, where performances often have themes of political injustice. He sits down to watch his daughter dance. And in the audience is one of the most beautiful, charismatic people I have ever met. Harry immediately falls for Rudy, an Austrian refugee who at 16 escaped his country with his mother after Nazi Germany annexed Austria. I know immediately that this is somebody I have to show my respects to. Now 28, this man, Rudy, agrees to meet Harry for dinner at a restaurant near the Sunset Strip called the Chuck Wagon. And I can't believe my good fortune because I'm not, I never expected that such a beautiful creature would ever pass into my life. And I'm just speechless and helpless and articulate and full of fire and figure and all kinds of things and full of words, articulate and inarticulate, the whole bit. Uh, I'm off on on uh, on all the all the dimensions. <laughs> Before the dinner, Harry rewrites his prospectus, the call, which he had redrafted occasionally over the past couple years. He arrives at the chuck wagon and takes the table with Rudy. He slides the document over for Rudy to read. Preliminary concepts, copyrighted by Ian McDonald. It says, Harry's pseudonym. Rudy skims through the call to society's androgynous minority. Harry wrote about homosexuals ruthlessly exterminated in the Holocaust. He worried of encroaching American fascism, which seeks to bend unorganized and unpopular minorities into isolated fragments. He wrote, Government indictments against androgynous civil servants lies in the legal establishment of a type of guilt by association, which the accused cannot disprove. Which means that if the government succeeds at attacking homosexuals, it has a weapon that can be employed as a threat against any and every man and woman in our country to ensure thought control and political regimentation. According to historian John D'Amelio, what Harry wrote made it imperative for homosexuals to organize. Harry also stresses caution moving forward. A system of membership by recommendation only in which members are sworn to secrecy and remain anonymous to the community and to each other for their own protection. It becomes clear to Rudy that Harry prophesied something many homosexuals didn't. That the guilt by association strategies the government is using could spread into the private enterprise. For example, Harry and many of his co-workers are employed by aircraft manufacturers. Those manufacturers have government contracts. Southern California is full of these government jobs in the 1940s and 50s. Harry sees a future where working-class homosexuals will find it impossible to get work because so many jobs are government-funded. Like Henry Gerber, fired from the post office. If this McCarthyist scapegoating thrives, homosexuals will be unable to survive. The document continues for six pages, finally saying, We, the androgenes of the world, have formed this responsible corporate body to demonstrate by our efforts that our physiological and psychological handicaps need to be no deterrent in integrating 10% of the world's population towards the constructive social progress of mankind. Rudy looks up at Harry, and he says, It's the most dangerous thing I've ever seen, and I'm with you 100%. 
He takes it home and reads it thoroughly. And he gives me a call the next day and he said, it's wonderful, when do we begin? I have a whole flock of prospects that we should go and try and I need at least 15 copies from you once. <laughs> you know, and you know, that, that probably was the most important day of my time for me because all of a sudden somebody else said, yeah. They're planning within a week. I might also add that by Monday night, I am hopelessly in love. Utterly, totally, hopelessly in love. Uh, and I know that all kinds of changes are going to have to take place. I'm not quite sure how it's all going to go, but this is the most important thing that's ever happened to me, and I am ready to throw all caution to the winds. But they do begin organizing slowly. Rudy knows of Magnus Hirschfeld's attempts to educate society, which were stamped out by the Nazis, and Harry knows of Henry Gerber. Rudy asks Harry for several copies of the call. He figures that since progressives are trying to get signatures for the Stockholm peace petition against the Korean War, he could go out with the same agenda. And they could use this as a way to feel the person out, and if it seems safe to ask, Harry and Rudy would present the idea of a gay organization. So from August to October 1950, the men go to the gay beaches in Santa Monica for signatures. They approach people and bring up the war, and then get into the U.S. government firing homosexuals from work. They say, isn't it high time we all got together to do something about it? Everyone at the gay beaches agrees, but no one wants to put their name on a list and commit their life to it, just like Henry Gerber dealt with 25 years ago in our episode last week. Harry and Rudy lay out their ideas for an organization that would establish homosexuals as a minority in the majority. They dream of an amendment to the U.S. Constitution, and it would begin with their organization's underground guilds fighting for it. Harry and Rudy need members, or how can they fight for this? The pair is unable to give up. They're working constantly through 1950. Harry finally feels like he's begun moving back to his true self. They look for opportunities everywhere to bring in members to start their organization. And finally, about... The 1st of November, Rudy one day says to me, we're getting absolutely noble. Are you sure there isn't somebody in one of your classes? Are you sure there aren't any gay guys in any of your classes? In November, while he's teaching music history at the California Labor School for the Communist Party, someone catches Harry's attention. He isn't sure if his student Bob is a homosexual, but he feels pretty certain. I, thought, I think I can show it to him. And this is um, Thursday, and my class is Thursday night. So I take in a couple of copies, one for him and one for Chuck. Chuck is Bob's roommate and former lover. Chuck had campaigned for Henry Wallace, the candidate Harry had tried to rally his gay friends around after that party two years ago. Harry swallows hard and clenches his fists, approaching Bob and his friend Chuck with two envelopes. After class, Bob and Chuck open the envelopes, and they read the call. On November 11th, 1950, Harry Hay answers the phone discreetly. It's Bob Hull, sounding distant, asking if he can come over. I said, yeah, and I call Rudy and say, Bob has called me, and you better be here. Soon Bob, Chuck, and another man are running up the Cove Avenue hillside off Silver Lake Boulevard up to Harry's house. Uh, and... I remember this afternoon, too. It was a very windy afternoon. Sometimes windy afternoons can be up there on top of Kona. And Chuck, it isn't Bob, it's Chuck who comes running through my driveway. Gravel drive unit, right at the end of the, the tunnel. And he's waving the, the perspectives in his hand, kind of blowing out like a flag. He said, I could have written myself, what do we begin? So we sat down and we began. The five of us. Harry is introduced to Bob's boyfriend, Dale Jennings, a playwright and veteran who campaigned for the civil rights of Japanese Americans. Harry brings Bob, Chuck, Dale, and Rudy to the bushy hillside beside Harry's house. The hill looked out over Silver Lake and then a beautiful view back towards Burbank, you know, around the corner that way, in the wind, and sat out in the weeds out there. And they talk for hours, swearing each other to secrecy. The five men decide to work with the communist structure they're familiar with, and Harry presents the concept of working from the idea that they are an oppressed cultural minority. They all agree, and officially form what they call the Society of Fools, which they would soon rename. 
The group meets several more times to perfect their ideas. Figure out where we could begin and what we could do first. And how many other gay guys do we know who might be interested? If we got a discussion group going, what kind of things would we discuss first? How would we approach this? The whole perspective, all the ideas and getting wild dreams going. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could have groups all the way across the country and the kind of underground liaison work we can do to help the progressive move fire in our eyes and, and faraway dreams? It was too wonderful we'd all found each other. By day, Harry continues to work in the factory. He also continues to teach his music history class at the labor school, which Bob and Chuck attend. The class starts a study of medieval France Renaissance performers. Well, in the course of this, I'm going to begin to discover the whole series of societies in medieval France who were known as Societés Royeurs. Now, the Societés Royeurs, insofar as we know, were groups of bachelors who were clerks in Lyon, in Nîmes, in, in Bordeaux, in Marseille, in La Rochelle, in Paris, all various parts of the world, various parts of the country. And in, in particular, there was a society that I found terribly interesting, and that was the Société Matachin. And the Société Matachin uh, were a group of masked men. No one ever knew who they were. We don't know anything about their names. We only know that they've always appeared masked, we only know that their leader was always known as Mare Sot, which means Mother Pig, always appeared in woman's dress on stage. They would go out into the countryside and they would perform rituals of protest against oppression in the name of the peasantry, because these people could be expendable and the peasantry were not. Fathers, we, families couldn't spare the fathers to be killed off by the the armies of the lords against whom they were protesting their oppression. But these people could because these were bachelors. And so this was the performance that they did. They went out in the countryside and they, they set themselves up as the fools who could speak out against oppression. I know who these people are. They're, they're my antecedents. And wouldn't it be wonderful if we were able to do this again? And this is where we got our name. Harry presents this name to the men of his new organization, and they all agree they will be called the Mattachine Foundation. In late November, the Mattachine Foundation is ready to try their first strategy and host a discussion group. People are invited discreetly. There have been the five of us. There was a girl who was a friend of Ruby's, and a pianist who was a friend of Bob's. The one who did the uh, Betty Davis and the Yeah, Christians. right. And a black man, young black man, was there. We had invited about 12 people, and these three showed. Chuck draws the curtains and puts a pillow over the phone to keep possible wiretappers from hearing the discussions. Arriving guests are scheduled to come to the door at different times, and departures are scattered as well in order to keep from drawing attention. The groups began as invitation-only gatherings, and then those invited are allowed to invite friends. Many people come once or twice and never return. Very few women come, but after noticing the lack of lesbians, people are encouraged to invite more women, including well-known photographer Ruth Bernhard. The discussions are the first opportunity many of these homosexuals have to get on the same page with each other. Many of them live with problems they've never discussed openly with anyone before. They exchange stories about coming out to friends or family. They talk about cruising spots, safe bars, and years of living alone. You know, you catch me. I, I really ought to go do my homework. I better go look up some of those discussion groups because I have, I have copies of some of the notes that we have. I did some of that homework and dug up Harry's notes. He wrote down, Homosexuals are lone wolves through fear of heterosexual people, and they understandably retreat more within themselves. He goes on, A homosexual has no one to whom he must account, and in the end, he must decide everything for himself. People who attend these meetings are asking questions like, how does one become a homosexual? And are we as sick as medical professionals say we are? Harry notes that their sexual energy isn't for procreating, so perhaps it's to be channeled into creativity. Perhaps society would attack them less if people could realize a homosexual's potential ability to offer a worthwhile contribution. Harry continues to listen to their concerns. The guests are understandably curious about where this organization will go. Are we even a minority group? Is it possible to overcome status and isolation and come together? Is this a minority group or just a bunch of people with nothing in common but how we have sex? Harry writes in his notes, Those in greatest need are sometimes the most reluctant to help each other or themselves, tending to think of personal experiences as things apart from the mutual effort toward betterment. 
Harry and his co-founders are persistent. They come to realize, as Harry's notes recorded, that homosexuals in general seem unaware that their problems adjusting to society creates a culture in itself. Harry sees that many homosexuals don't see that they are already a social minority. They're a secret society, living among the dominant culture. Harry writes, Some glad day there shall be a body of knowledge which would show that homosexuals have much in common. Harry is determined to bring that body of knowledge together. But meanwhile at the FBI, unbeknownst to Harry, his security index card is tabbed for ComSab, Communist Sabotage, because he works for a company with a government contract, just the sort of government monitoring Harry Hay feared. The groups are continuing to meet. These discussion groups are somewhat separate of the actual Mattachine Foundation. People that show up for discussion groups aren't necessarily members of the Mattachine because most of them haven't heard the word Mattachine and don't know who is running these groups. Harry and his co-founders attend the discussion groups and guide conversations in a casual way that makes it feel informal and spontaneous. People can't figure out who is in charge, so Harry and the co-founders are safe from blame for these meetings should something go wrong. Meanwhile, they discreetly vet these people attending the discussions for membership in the Mattachine, because the Mattachine is the part of their plan for activism outside of the discussion groups. The co-founders notice a pair named Conrad Stevens and James Gruber. This photographer and aspiring teacher speak with passion about homosexuality. The co-founders finally decide to take these two men aside and reveal the Mattachine and the purpose of these discussion groups. Normally, when they reveal the Mattachine to a discussion group attendee, they offer this person membership and a place in the First Order Guild. This is how the Mattachine is inspired by the communist cell structure. No guild knows who the other members are for the safety of everyone. The five men of the Foundation, Harry, Rudy, Bob, Chuck, and Dale, are the Fifth Order, the top. New members are the First Order. As the organization grows, Harry plans to fill in levels of leadership between the first and fifth orders so that people in other cells won't know where the information comes down from. Everyone operates on a safe level of anonymity in case the government infiltrates and begins seeking names of homosexual leaders. But in the case of Conrad and James, Chuck says that it was like magic when they joined. The co-founders offer the pair a place at the top, the fifth order, running the Mattachine with them. Con and Jim come, and immediately it's a huh, and we've now got seven. So all of a sudden, when they come to the, they come to the first discussion group, and in the third session, there's no point in having the discussion group anymore. They belong with us. James so says he is terrified by it all. The communist language scares him, but the mission of the organization is irresistible to the couple that becomes known by the single nickname STEM. The Mattachine is becoming a group of lovers and former lovers, much like Henry Gerber imagined for the movement. In the spring of 1951, they spend months writing a document stating their missions and purposes in order to catalyze Harry's call to action. To unify, homosexuals isolated from their own kind provide something all of our people can derive a feeling of belonging. To educate both homo and heterosexual people through new information on homosexuality through further research and develop an ethical homosexual culture paralleling the emerging cultures of other minorities. To lead socially conscious homosexuals to achieve unification. Members stand in a circle and take hands, swearing in an oath to work together for equality. Conduct myself in a way that will reflect credit upon myself and the organization. To respect the rights of all racial, religion, and national minorities. To observe the generally accepted social rules of dignity and propriety at all times in my conduct, attire, and speech. To strive in every possible way to interest other responsible people. To participate actively and seriously in the work. To, to unconditionally guard the anonymity of all members of the Mattachine. Our interlocking, sustaining, and protecting hands guarantee a reborn social force of immense and simple purpose. We are resolved that our people shall find equality of security and production in tomorrow's world. We are sworn that no boy or girl approaching the maelstrom of deviation need make that crossing alone, afraid, and in the dark ever again. In these moments, we dedicate ourselves once again to, to each, each other, other in the, the immense, immense significance of such, of such allegiance, allegiance with dignity and respect, proud and free.
Bob's boyfriend, co-founder Dale Jennings, will later remember this saying, To many a homosexual who have lived out years of loneliness and bitterness, believing that his lot in society was a miserable one and without hope, the whole proceedings, the sense of group fellowship, the joining of hands and solemn oath, bespoke something so new and of such dazzling implication as to be well-nigh unbelievable. One day, member Geraldine Jackson will say, You felt like you had a mission in the world. You felt that you were doing something terribly worthwhile for our people. Chuck Rowland will later recall, No one felt that our rituals were empty, frivolous, or lugubrious. In the meantime, we are beginning to develop a team, and then the five of us beginning to, to be a something, like a family in a way, as we would call it now. And uh, at Christmas, we all, this was a difficult thing. At Christmas, on Christmas Eve, they all come to my house. And um, my wife is a little uneasy about all of this because this is, well, there seems to be a, there seems to be a closeness of those five that she didn't know about that doesn't seem strange. And Steve Frischman, the Unitarian, the, he was first, still minister of First Unitarian, was there. And he's very embarrassed, very embarrassed, because I had been to see him two years before and gotten nowhere. And, um, uh, but anyway, we're all having a ball, we're singing Christmas carols and all kinds of songs, and there are a couple of us who are doing two piano stuff, and Bob is at one end, nine at the other, and we're doing choruses and chorales and this and that, and it's very lively and it's very good, and it's very pleasant, and we don't have words for it. The groups grow as summer goes on. When more than about 20 people show up, the foundation splits off the discussion groups to expand the First Order. A public meeting sometimes draws in 150 attendees, where the foundation seeks out new Mattachine leaders. They make up a small guidebook explaining how to lead discussions and what topics to cover. Some groups even have same-sex dancing, which isn't allowed by police, but can happen in the privacy of someone's home. The foundation makes a questionnaire for groups, which is several pages long. Few of the people have ever been questioned about their sexual or social lives, and there is endless discussion following. They talk about how things can be changed and how a gay subculture can grow, how to change social attitudes, and the strengths they have learned by surviving in this world. What we're trying to do, we're trying to find out what is the nature of our relationship. And we don't have words for it at this time, neither does anybody else. We're talking about a possibility. And the whole concept of an agreement begins to take shape. It still hasn't got words, but it's something that is sort of ESP. We come together and we get this sense of a brotherhood. We get this sense of a belonging, this sense of a being together, which is so different from cruising. There are mass arrests and bar raids out there, loss of jobs and an impossibility to protest these things publicly. People are terrified that the government will get a list of names and the cop will come banging down the door of the discussion groups and arrest everyone. Almost all attendees use pseudonyms no matter how comfortable these discussions become. But there are never raids on the meetings. They become a safe space for gays who fear bar raids and unsafe places in gay subculture. One woman in the First Order later recalled, People were able to bloom and be themselves. It was something we didn't know before. At last there was the opportunity to say what you wanted to say and feel accepted. Gruber later said, All of us had known a whole lifetime of not talking, of repression, just the freedom to open up. That's what it was all about. We had found a sense of belonging, of camaraderie, of openness, and an atmosphere of tension and distrust. A family feeling came out of it, a non-sexual emphasis. It was a brand new idea. Just that is what kept the organization going. And Gruber is right. Initially, this family feeling is what will keep the organization fighting when society begins to take notice of them. Before these growing groups can really take off, an unnamed informant contacts the FBI. This informant tells the Bureau that Chuck and Bob are homosexuals and are living together. The informant claims to know this because he is also a homosexual, and he too is a dissociated communist brought into the party by Bob. Now Chuck and Bob are also out of the party, likely expelled for their sexuality, the FBI takes note of Mattachine co-founders Bob Hull and Chuck Rowland, marking their sexuality down in their FBI files under health. Bob and Chuck don't know the FBI is watching. Luckily, the organization is moving slow and keeping private. Their next discreet but vital step is finding a lawyer. This lawyer has helped a gay friend on a charge, and he helps the foundation get a preliminary charter to start a non-profit corporation. Within a year, Harry felt that organizing the Mattachine was a call to me deeper than the innermost reaches of the spirit, 
a vision quest more important than life. So he goes to his Communist Party leadership and explains his call and recommends his own expulsion. I had, I've said I can no longer, I can no longer pretend to something that is no longer so. I must come out in my, for what I am and for who I am, and you must understand this, and you must, I must appreciate this. Because he's been dedicated to them for 18 years and taught for them, they only drop him as a security risk, but as a lifelong friend of the people. And I begin to think, but I have had all this magnificent experience in training, in organization, and in struggle. And I think my own people are going to need this. And how wonderful that I have gotten it, because now I can pass it on. Maybe. Next, Harry tells his family. Yeah, it's in September of 1951, when I tell my wife what is happening, and the type of group that I'm organizing, and she immediately says, oh, this could grow, and it could certainly hit the newspapers with the kind of activities that you're undertaking, and the children will be endangered, and you have to go. Anita tells Harry, You know, I suddenly realized you never married me, you married the Communist Party, which was part of your truth. I felt in order for them to remain secure, as secure as possible, as secure as I possibly could, that they should be left intact, that the, none of the people and friends that I knew, should, I should contact none of them. Uh, that I would leave them, leave the family with these people surrounding them and giving them comfort, and I would simply withdraw. So that all of the people that I had met, and all the people that I knew over all those years, I never went back to again, I never saw any of them again. I never explained. I let my wife do whatever explanation she wanted. I let the children use whatever explanation they wanted. And I didn't interfere with it at all. So I didn't see them. I didn't even see my brother and his wife for 15 years. Harry gives his life over to the Mattachine for the good of the movement. Well, uh, it was absolutely necessary. You see, the thing was that I didn't know at that time, but it occurred to me that because of my connections in the party, because of my teaching, uh, because of the fact that the conspiracy trials were already beginning to happen in New York, and we knew there was only a matter of time before they'd happen in California, I could very well be called in, into the, the conspiracy trials. This is under the Smith Act. The, conspiracy, the Communist Party leaders are being accused of a conspiracy to overthrow the government by force and violence. Uh, I was a fairly prominent teacher, a pr prominent educator so that I could be called in, and I, I didn't have no way of knowing what the FBI knew and didn't know, so that they could call me in relationship to Manchine workers, too. Uh, and consequently, uh, if there was an, a possibility that it would be, it would make a lovely, juicy story. We knew that it would make a lovely, scandalous story. So when he isn't working at the factory, his life is consumed by the work with the Foundation. It's time to allow the First Order discussion groups to thrive on their own and turn the Fifth Order toward the call to action. When brutal L.A. police harassment of the Chicano community begins getting attention in the press, the city of Los Angeles holds hearings due to pressure for investigation into police practices. The Mattachine Foundation attends the hearing to speak in favor of disciplinary action and support of minorities fighting police brutality. Harry moves out of his home in Silver Lake down the road to Hollywood. I don't know that that's necessary courage. It simply was a situation, it was a, a, a turning that I had made, a bridge I had crossed. And this was the, the new commitment that was necessary. I mean, I wasn't being unfaithful. I wasn't wasn't being unfaithful to an old commitment. I had made an old commitment. I had now made a change. I had now recognized something that I wasn't able to recognize before. The change of circumstance. And this was something that the people I loved and worked with had to know. But it was on that hillside in his home with Anita, sitting in the bushes, that five homosexuals started a movement. Today, outside Harry Hayes' former home, a set of concrete stairs leads up from Cove Avenue through the bushes to the top of that hill, beginning with a sign that says, The Mattachine Steps. Harry Hay founded the Mattachine Society on this hillside on November 11, 1950. He spends the next year actively meeting his people, addressing problems within the community, and strategizing how to help us all. He writes down in those discussion meeting notes, Homosexuals do not understand themselves, and thus it is not surprising that heterosexuals do not understand them either. The Mattachine Foundation becomes determined to fix that, even within the splintering of their own personal relationships. By spring 1952, Dale and Bob break up. Dale's feeling down and he goes out to see a movie. 
He passes on a couple films showing that he doesn't care to see, and around 9pm he stops off in Westlake Park, now called MacArthur Park, near downtown LA, to use the toilet. In the restroom, a man puts his hand on Dale's crotch, but Dale isn't interested in cruising. He leaves the restroom and heads home. The big, rough guy follows behind him. Dale speeds up, trying to lose him at each corner. When he gets home, the man pushes his way inside Dale's apartment, insisting on sleeping with Dale. Dale continues to resist until the man pulls out his badge and handcuffs him. Maybe you'll talk better with my partner outside, the man says. Dale Jennings is arrested and hauled to the police station, and the Mattachine Foundation finds itself at a time for action. Next week on Mattachine. Stay tuned for a preview of next week's episode. Mattachine was created and hosted by me, Devlin Camp. I'd like to thank everyone for their kind messages following episode one last week. I'm so grateful and thrilled to see so many people acknowledging the importance of our queer history. If you're enjoying the show, I'd really appreciate it if you rate and review the show on iTunes. It's a huge help to spread the word about the show and continue to share our history. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Mattachine Files. Go check those out and share posts on your own social media to support our history. I share photos and moments from our past discussed on the show. Please share the show with your friends, whether they're gay, straight, asexual, or anywhere on the Kinsey scale. Thanks. Our editorial advisor is the fabulous and brilliant Paul DeCicio. And thanks to my mentor, Albert Williams, for helping get this show off the ground. Voice actors for the show include Courtney Tesh for the Kinsey segment, John Roth in the News Report, Faye Camp as Geraldine Jackson, Nathan Cooper as Chuck Rowland, and Steve and Faye Camp and Albert Williams in the Mattachine Oath. You can find the sources for the show on our website, mattachinepod.com, along with other fun little goodies I didn't have time to include today. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can do that on the website, too. The original Mattachine Society Jester logo and audio clips of Harry Hay are courtesy of One Archives at the USC Libraries. We'll soon be discussing the creation of One Magazine on this podcast, which eventually grew into an institute that has collected what is now the largest library of queer history in the world. We all owe a huge debt to them. That library's foundation was built on the collection of Jim Kepner, which he amassed in his own apartment for years. Jim is the guy you heard talking to Harry in this week's episode. The one who did the uh, Betty Davis and the Yeah, right. And we'll hear more about him in the weeks to come. Check out our website for links to the One Archives and how to donate to them, and our other sources on mattachinepod.com. If you're interested in reading Harry Hayes' prospectus that brought the Mattachine together, The Call, that's also posted on mattachinepod.com. Audio clips from The Rejected, the first American documentary on homosexuality, are licensed by 13 Productions and WNET. The music for this episode were the songs Comfortable Mystery, On the Cool Side, Moonlight Hall, Dark Walk, Bumman on Tremelo, Night on the Dock, Spy Groove, Babylon, Lasting Hope, Secret of Tiki Island, Shamanistic, and The Complex, all by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. The permissions and licenses for this show certainly add up. If you'd like to contribute to the production of this show, you can check out our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash files and contribute as little as a dollar per episode. Donors get private perks, like exclusive photos through the research process, PDF transcripts, of episodes and bonus episodes and some other things. If you're a school teacher though, contact me on mattachinepod.com using your school email and you will receive free transcripts of every single episode. Please teach your students all the queer history you can get your hands on. Thanks for listening. Here's what's coming next week. Blackmail, intimidation, shakedown, entrapment, search and seizure without warrant, incarceration without charge. And people had to come together in order to to cooperate, in order to survive. A homosexual is found everywhere, every small community, every rural district throughout the country, a large city, New York, San Francisco, every occupation in every city. They turned out in droves. Men of unconventional morality. People wouldn't come to the groups unless they felt that there was something out in front of them. Since we last communicated with you, we have become affiliated with the Mattachine. Foundation, a nonprofit corporation interested in the problems of sexual variance. They set themselves up as the fools. Mattachine members believe the FBI will eventually investigate. I didn't have no way of knowing what the FBI knew and didn't know. Moral weaklings. Dale wants the right to be left alone. Harry wants visibility. Create a facade, and then behind the facade we could organize. Is homosexuality a behavior, or is it a minority of people? Networks of sanctuaries, of places where we could come and out of which we would be able to move and organize and change things across the country. A strange new pressure group claiming to represent the homosexual voters of Los Angeles, vigorously shopping for campaign promises. The beginnings of real, real dichotomy, real splits uh, in political outlook. We introduced at this time 
the name homophile. Everybody said that gays would not fight back. And I'm not about to buy the thing that gays think the same as heteros because they don't. In the Mattachine, we are seeking acceptance of the homosexual in society. Société Natasha uh, were a group of masked men. No one ever knew who they were. We don't know anything about their names. We only know that their leader was always known as Mare Sot, which means Mother Pig, always appeared in woman's dress on stage. I've been that bitch, yes, I love that drama. Is she feminine? 